My heart is full tonight. It's good. And I'm so excited about what the Lord has laid on my heart to share. And uh, trust and pray that you're going to be blessed. So, Lord, have your way tonight. Have your way. Have your way, Lord. Do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, your power, your presence, your anointing. Your word. Have your way tonight, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, hey, I am really looking forward to uh, sharing something with you tonight. And uh, I'm going to be... I'm going to be talking about something that I believe will help us understand just a little bit more of the, the magnitude and the depth of what Jesus did on the cross. And uh, so to do that, I'm going to need to venture into an area that we don't always go into, which that doesn't sound like me, right? But uh, it, it makes a world of difference in understanding what's going on in the scriptures, especially in relation to what Jesus did on the cross. And uh, I don't know about you, but I could always do with more understanding and appreciation for what Jesus did on the cross. Amen. Not just for me, but for the sake of the world. And so uh, let's begin in Mark chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 35. It says, That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats also with him. And a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So he got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. My sermon tonight is titled, The Wind and the waves, the wind and the waves. And I want to share a number of observations that I get from this passage with you, which I believe are pretty relevant to the season that we're in right now. And I'm going to go through piece by piece and draw out some interesting surrounding context. But ultimately, I just want to draw your attention really to two sides of the same point, which we're going to come to at the end. So I want to start in verse 35 at the beginning here. We're just going to start pulling some things out of the passage, starting in verse 35, and Jesus says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. That was it. There's nothing else recorded there in terms of his instruction. There was no rhyme or reason given. There was no uh, uh, stated intention about where they were going. He literally just said, let's go over to the other side. And I don't know about you, but um, that kind of seems to be the way that the Holy Spirit works, Right? There's not really any necessarily uh, knowing where you're going sometimes, but he just says, go. He says, let's just go to the other side. And uh, I think in, in our human nature, we, we would rather go when we're given the why, the how, the where, and the when. But often God and the Holy Spirit will just say, go. And if you trust in the Lord, you just got to go. Yeah. 
And it's actually, it's worth noting that this is the first time that the disciples are recorded in the book of Mark as being out on the lake with Jesus. They hadn't done this before, at least as far as we know. It appears to be the first time. And like Pastor Peter often says, and Pastor Corey mentioned it this morning, in this terms of the season we're in right now as a, as a community, as a, as a nation, as a world, we haven't been this way before. And it was in this setting of new territory that this storm occurred. And when they were on the water, it says a furious squall came up. The waves broke over the boat. It was nearly swamped, but Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And isn't it so often the case that when, when squalls turn up in our own life, when storms rise up, in the early part of the storm, it often feels and seems like Jesus is sleeping. Am I, am I talking to anybody? In, in the early stages often of these seasons, it can seem like, where is God right now? And it can seem like God is silent and it might be harder to find for a time. And it might seem like he is asleep because in the early stages of the storm, we can't necessarily see him doing anything. Yeah? And we so badly at times, we, we, we want his hand to move because we want the situation to go away or we want the season to end. But because we're not seeing that, it seems like God is not doing anything, that he's asleep or he's unaware. Or, or, and the thing is, when that's our perspective, we react emotionally just like the disciples did and say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? God, why, why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't I hearing from you? Why aren't I getting a direction from you at the moment? And don't you care what I'm going through? Surely if you cared, you would do something. And that's, that's so, I don't know about you, maybe this is just me, but it's so often the way, and we, we interpret a, a lack or an apparent lack of action. And I say apparent because it only appears that way to us because God is always working. But we, we interpret an apparent lack of action as some kind of lack of care or lack of love or lack of whatever emotional response we give to it comes down to how we interpret an apparent lack of action. But here's the thing. They didn't actually fully appreciate who was on the boat with them. Listen to how they address him. They said, teacher, teacher. They weren't yet addressing him as Lord. They didn't fully appreciate at that point exactly who was on the boat with them. And when we read the Bible, see, we, when we read it, we've got the benefit of hindsight. We know who Jesus is from the get-go. We have the benefit of that. But in this point of the story, as far as the disciples are concerned, they haven't come to that revelation yet. It's not until four chapters later when Peter gets a revelation and Jesus says, hey, that didn't come to you by any man that came to you by the Father, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. So at this point in the story, in the middle of the storm, they weren't appreciating who was on the boat with them. And, and it's interesting because if, when I look at that and I'm like, okay, so they didn't necessarily realize that he was the son of God, God incarnate in the flesh. So exactly what did they expect him to do? <laughs> By waking him up, what, what did they expect him to do? Because what he did do took them completely by surprise. It says here in verse 39, he got up rebuked the wind and the waves, said, quiet, be still. And the wind died down and completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? 
And I don't know about you, but this seems to be one of the most relatable moments in the Bible because Jesus has just been rudely woken up and he seems understandably grumpy about it. And I mean, if you're tired enough to sleep when the waves are literally crashing over your boat, you clearly need the nap. And you can almost hear the tone of his voice when he's like, guys, why, where is you? Come on. <laughs> I was asleep. And I think this is probably where I am most like Jesus in my own life. <laughs> when I get woken, <laughs> Sarah will attest to that. So it's a Christ-like quality, apparently. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run with this. It's in the scriptures. I'm going to run with it. I mean, I've been on one of these boats, on, on a replica of these boats, and on, on the Lake of Galilee, and thankfully there was no storms when we went out, but they're not big, they're not sheltered, they're, they're not particularly comfortable to sleep on. So he must have been in a deep sleep, and, you know, uh, he must, have you ever thought about this? He, have you ever wondered what Jesus would dream when he would sleep? No, I'm not, I'm not, it's not a joke, I'm being serious. Imagine what he would dream. I don't know, I just, I've always wondered. I don't have the answer to that, but... Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to try and <laughs> go there. This is what I want you to catch tonight. The disciples were afraid for their lives. They could see the waves crashing down upon them, and judging by what they could see, they thought they were going to drown. And the disciples were all panicked about the waves overcoming them, but the first thing Jesus did was rebuke the wind. Come on, some of you didn't catch that. The disciples thought the waves were the problem, but Jesus dealt with the wind. See, listen, you've got to understand tonight, sometimes things that are seen are caused by things that are unseen. Come on now, that'll preach. Sometimes things that are seen in your life are caused by things that are unseen. The disciples thought the waves were the problem. Jesus spoke to the wind. Sometimes we're so focused, so distracted by the things that we see that we fail to realize that the battle is not with that which is seen. The battle is that which is unseen. And we keep railing and struggling and wrestling against the natural thing that we can see and all the while wondering why the thing isn't moving, but perhaps because we're fighting the wrong battle. And sometimes we only begin to see victory when we start realizing that the waves are only the symptom and not the cause. This is why Ephesians 6.12 tells us this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What does that mean? Against natural things, but against rulers, against the authorities. What authorities are talking about? Talk about government? No, it's talking about spiritual authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are things that are set in the heavenly places. So the question is, what is that even talking about? What, is that, what does that passage right there even mean? And, and what do we do with that? Because I don't know about you, but one thing I've, I've come to learn about the Bible is that there's always more going on behind the scenes than we realize. So who are these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? I'm going to just quickly give you a, a background, just very quickly, just to give you a lens that will shine some more light 
on what's going on here in Mark 4. Who are these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Well, we know from Genesis 11, due to man's rebellion at Babel, which was a project in direct defiance of God's authority to set up their own government and their own authority outside of God. The Lord destroyed the project. He confused the language and he scattered the people, right? God disinherited the nations and he allocated them their own gods. Now, I know this might seem new to you, but you can read about this in Numbers 14 and Deuteronomy 32. He set other rulers over them, right? He disinherited the nations. And shortly after that, he called a man called Abram out of the region because he was going to make a covenant with that man so that he and his descendants would be their God and they would be his people, that they would be an inheritance. And the other nations, while they were allocated to other spiritual rulers, Israel would be God's own inheritance. All right? You can read about this. It's all there. And these spiritual rulers, as time went on, that God allocated to the nations became fallen. And later on in Psalm 82, God pronounced judgment upon them for their evil rulership of the nations and prophesied their ultimate destruction at the end of the age. Right? And every nation has a prince spirit over it. Again, read Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 32. We can see more detail about this in Daniel 10. Didn't time to go into, but suffice to say, the chief among them is the devil himself, the prince of the air, right? Now, a lot of what Jesus did during his ministry was actually dealing with these elements at the same time as dealing with things in the natural. In fact, when Jesus died and rose again, we read it this morning, Colossians 2.15 says, having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What does that mean? How did he do that? Because after judging these rulers in Psalm 82 for their wicked stewardship of the nations that God had charged them over, the end of that chapter prophesies a restoration. Who knows God's into restoration? Who knows he's a God of reconciliation? And there's a prophecy at the end of that chapter that God will in the future inherit all nations back to himself. And Jesus made this possible by his work on the cross, stripping the principalities of their powers because Jesus was victorious over sin and death and he made a way that we might be too. By taking the nations back, by bringing his kingdom to them through your and my evangelistic efforts. Am I making sense tonight? Yeah? This is why when Jesus gave his disciples the great commission, he starts with this statement. He says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go out into all the nations and make disciples. Why did he need to preface the Great Commission with the statement that he had all authority in relation to the nations? Why did he have to say that? Because this was a change of theology for them. Because those nations belong to other gods. And I know we don't like to use the term gods, but the Bible, the Bible does. Small g's, right? You shall serve no other gods but me. You don't only have to say that if there are other gods. Not, not the most high God, obviously, because he is the most high, the creator of all things. But these are beings that he has created. Yeah? Am I talking, <laughs> talking to anyone? I know this is territory we don't have to go into, but it's the Bible. But in fa- as far as the disciples understood, because of their, their, their Jewish background, only, only chosen Israel held a covenant with God. All other nations have been disinherited. And I can't overstate enough the exclusivity of the Jewish worldview. Even today amongst Orthodox Jews, it's the Jews and only the Jews as far as they know. 
right? But Jesus was showing his disciples that his work on the cross applied to all humanity and not just the nation of Israel. It wasn't the end of the law, it was the culmination of it. And this was further reinforced at Pentecost, where unlike Babel, where everyone was in one place at Babel, and, but their language was confused, and because of their confusion of language, they were scattered across the earth to their own nations. Well, here at Pentecost, you have every man from every nation in the same place, and what did they hear? Their own language. Each one to their own, a heavenly tongue. They each heard the gospel, the, the, the glories of God spoken to them in, the, in their own tongue. Did you ever wonder why Pentecost manifested that way? Because it was undoing Babel. It was reversing what happened at Babel. God was bringing the nations back to himself. Yeah? This is what was going on at Pentecost. And this was a huge moment and a shift in the disciples' worldview to go out into other nations. I mean, in their previous worldview, these were the territories of other gods, which are very real beings. I mean, you can read, came to Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. God didn't just judge Israel. He said he was judging the gods of Israel. Uh, sorry, the gods of Egypt. Yeah. There's always something spiritual going on at the same time something natural is. They correspond, right? That's, you can read about that in Exodus 12. See it again in Daniel 10, Prince of Persia fighting the archangel Michael, who's the angel charged with protecting Israel. This is while the Jews were in captivity in Babylon, right? Because there's always a corresponding action on the earth, right? Every time there's war in the heavenlies, things are going on on the earth. So, I mean, and this is why, once you see this lens and background, you see it threaded all throughout Scripture. This is why the stuff with Baal and Dagon and the Philistine gods, like, it's all there. This is all territorial spiritual warfare, right, going on in the Scriptures, Right? Now, this is why, by the way, Jesus sent out 70 disciples. Because you can read in Genesis 10 about the table of nations when at Babel, God split the nations up into 70 nations. So Jesus sends out 70 disciples, one to every nation. Come on, now, there's a reason these numbers are there. Jesus is bringing the nations back. This is part of the reconciliation ministry of what Jesus did and made a way for on the cross. There's so much more going on than we tend to realize. And I didn't come to talk about all that tonight, but I was just, I was just trying to give you some background to give us another lens because once you understand and see this stuff, it's it helpful because you otherwise miss some things, right? This is why Jesus spoke first to the unseen. Yeah? Because sometimes certain things happen in the natural that have supernatural agendas behind them. And we need to be able to discern when that's the case so we fight the right battle. So coming back to Mark 4, because I said all that to kind of bring it back around to Mark 4, just to raise the curtain a little bit more on the background of this story. The first context we need to understand here and on the lake, which will help us understand what's going on, is we need to examine where Jesus was, where he was going, and what he was going to do. So let's... Look at that. Everyone still with me? We're all okay? Making sense? Cool, cool. So let's look at where Jesus is. So Jesus sets out from Capernaum, which is on the northern side of Galilee, and it turns out he's heading to a place called Decapolis, which is on the eastern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, right? Now, the area is known for its tempest, but the thing is he's on a boat with experienced fishermen, 
who knew how to read the skies and the weather patterns and given the Bible's description of suddenly a storm arose, it shows that despite their knowledge and experience of the weather, they weren't expecting this storm, which is unusual. And I believe that while it was a natural storm, it had a supernatural agenda behind it. And a lot of scholars speculate that this storm was likely another attempt on the life of Jesus because there were many attempts on his life throughout his ministry, right? Remember even this first little mini sermon out of the book of Isaiah and it says they took him on top of a cliff and wanted to throw him off. Passionate people, these Jewish people, right? It says he passed right through them, right? That was one of many times where people tried to take his life but Jesus said, my time has not yet come. No one takes life from him anyway. He lays it down of his own accord. So there were other plots, but his time hadn't come. And all of these attempts were unsuccessful, of course, except for the last one, which, of course, he allowed his life to be taken. But, of course, it meant that the enemy ended up shooting themselves in the foot by doing it. <laughs> I love it. It's the best story ever. Because his death made a way for his resurrection and his victory and our victory and their loss. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, talking about the mystery of the ages, which is Jesus, the crucifixion and resurrection, says, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For if they'd known, they wouldn't have crucified him. Yeah? This stuff goes on behind the scenes. This is why the plan of Jesus was a mystery, hidden in plain sight in the Scriptures, not hidden from us, but hidden for us, because the enemy's looking for the plan of God too, which is why some things are only revealed to you at the last moment. Not hidden for, from you, hidden for you, yeah? So anyway, this, this, this storm blows up out of nowhere, right? It just, just it comes up. And as I said, I believe it has a supernatural agenda behind it. And it's no coincidence, get this. He was specifically on his way to deliver a man suffering demonic oppression. We're going to read about that shortly, but it's literally the only reason he went over. Because he went over, did the deliverance, came straight back. Right? We're going to read about that shortly. But it's worth noting that the winds that would cause the storms to rise up on this lake were winds that arose from the summits of Mount Hermon, which you may or may not know, but Mount Hermon was where the fallen angels came down and reproduced in Genesis 6 and all that weird stuff, which ultimately led to the flood. And so for the Jews, this mountain, this place represented sin and rebellion. And in fact, that was where they believed the gates of hell are, which is why Jesus stood there and said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. Yeah, Jesus knew that. He stood there and said it. Yeah, remember how Jacob saw the gate of heaven there at Bethel, right? Angels ascending and descending. That's where they believe the gate of heaven is. Well, Mount Hermon is where they believe the gate of hell is. Jesus knew that, ministered to it. He said, my church is going to prevail against it. Come on now, the places he says things matter. It's not just the things he says, but the places he says them. More going on than we realize. And I, I don't believe that, uh, you know, so these winds that are, that are causing the, the lake to come up are from this mountain. And so uh, anyway, these winds were what caused the storm and Jesus was on his way to deliver a major stronghold for a city there. So I don't believe it was just a coincidence that the storm occurs there and then. In fact, when Jesus rebukes the wind, not only does it show his authority over nature, but at the same time demonstrates his power and authority over the prince of the air. Yeah? That is ultimately who has been rebuked there. In fact, his command to be quiet, be silent, mirrors exactly what he said to an unclean spirit in Mark 1.25, dealing with deliverance. Moreover, the disciples' response mirrors exactly what the crowd said at this deliverance, because they said, who is this that even the unclean spirits would obey him? 
Now, I need to draw your attention quickly as well to where he's heading to because this is also unusual. See, Jesus' ministry is focused on the Jews, right? He spends the vast majority of his time in the Jewish territory, right? But here, he's actually going over into Gentile territory, to the other side of a lake, to the capitalist. And the reason that's unusual is because his mission was to the Jewish people, not to the Gentiles. And that might sound heretical, but let me read the scriptures to you. Matthew 10, 5, Jesus said to his 12 apostles, don't go the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15, 24, Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right, this isn't about race, by the way, this is about covenant. The covenant with God that came to the world through the Jewish nation, right? These are the very words of Jesus in John 4, 22. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, you worship what you do not know, but we Jews worship what we know for salvation's from the Jews. Romans 3, 1, Paul asks the question, what advantage has the Jew? Or what has the benefit of circumcision? He answers in verse 2, he says, great in every respect, because they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Romans 11 talks about how they were the branches of the the olive tree, but those branches were broken because they rejected him. So we, the Gentile nations, were grafted in, yeah, to the olive tree, yeah? Verse 17, some of the branches were broken off, being the Jewish nation. And you, talking to us, the Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. Yeah? Paul reflects this in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first, he says, and then to the Gentile. What does that mean? Why does he say that? We see this prioritization in Paul's first missionary journey also. Every time he came to a new city, where would he go? To the synagogues preach to the Jews first. We had to speak the word of God to you first, he says in Acts 13, 46. But since you reject it, see, God's still fulfilling his covenant, right? Trying to reach the Jewish people, right? But since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, now, he says, Acts 13, now we turn to the Gentiles, right? And it's after this point where Galatians 3 comes in and says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Slave nor free, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's not about race, it's about covenant. We've been grafted into the Abrahamic covenant, right? And now we're in the time of the Gentiles, which is something Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. I say all that to say how unusual it is for Jesus to be going across the other side of the lake to a Gentile city, given everything we've just gone over, right? Outside his usual territory, specifically to reach one Gentile man, in a Gentile city, yeah? But I sneakily suspect that although his immediate mission was to seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel, this was demonstrating his heart, which is to leave the 99 for the one. He literally went all night to the other side of the lake for one. This is the heart of God, I believe. We can pick it up here in Mark 5, 1, and we're gonna read about what happened says, they came to the other side of the sea out of the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains. 
because he'd been often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him. They used iron chains in those days. So this is some pretty big strength. And the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always day and night, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And he saw Jesus from afar. He ran and worshipped him. And he cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now Legion is a Roman term for a Roman battalion of about 5,400 soldiers. And they begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountain. So all the demons begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits went out, entered the swine. There were about 2,000. By the way, this is, how, this is also how we know this wasn't Jewish territory. They didn't have pig farms in, in Israel. <laughs> they weren't allowed to, right? And at once Jesus gave them permission. The unclean spirits went out, entered the swine, and they ran violently down the steep place to the sea, drowned in the sea. Now, pigs are perfectly capable of swimming. So I don't know what's going on here, but it's not normal. So anyway, those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and the country. And they went out to see that what had happened. They came to Jesus, and they saw the one who'd been demon-possessed, the legion, sitting, clothed and in his right mind. Amazing. And they were afraid. And those who, Amazing being afraid. This guy's gone from insane to restored. And, and that's... Oh, man. Some people. <laughs> and those who saw it told them how it happened to him that he had been demon-possessed, and they ran into the swine. He began to plead, depart from their region. That blows my mind. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus didn't permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends, tell them the great things the Lord has done for you. Now he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Very cool. Again, this is a Gentile. Yeah? Unusual given his mission. But his name was glorified. And that's always the point. But you know, Jesus does this a couple of times. He goes out of his way to meet an individual, the Samaritan woman at the well. That's why the disciples marveled that he talked to her. Because in the Jewish religious framework of the temple, the unclean couldn't access their means to redemption. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, he was banned from the temple. The woman at the well, she was a Samaritan. She wasn't allowed in the temple. The man in the caves, none of them could go to the temple and work their means of redemption. So Jesus took redemption to them. This is the heart of God. He did it for them, and I thank God He did it for me because I don't know about you, but I had no place I could go and no thing I could do to access my redemption except for what Jesus did for me on the cross is what He did for you on the cross. This is what he won when he finished the work of redemption. But anyway, the point I'm making is that Jesus, in the story of Mark 4, coming back to it on the lake here, he was on assignment for deliverance. And just like the archangel Michael was on assignment on his way to Daniel, Jesus was resisted by unseen forces on his way there. And I raise this because sometimes the same happens to us when we are on assignment. But too often we wrestle with the natural 
We wrestle with the flesh and the blood rather than the principalities and the powers. Am I making sense? And these powers and principalities are still at work at the nations today. They, in, in my opinion, they have a lot to do with what's going on in the world right now in terms of causing division between people. And I think as Christians, we would have to be naive not to understand this because we too often underestimate it. But we, as the people of God, know that people are not the enemy. Yeah? The enemy is the spirit of fear and the spirit of division. That is what we do battle with. We don't battle people. We battle the spirits that are resisting it. That is what we need to do battles with. There are spirits over nations. There are spirits over cities. And this is why history repeats, by the way. This is why history repeats. This is why the rise and fall of empires and nations always have the same patterns. Why? Because it's the same set of spirit behind it every time. Right? Now, their goal is to rob, kill, and destroy, but we carry authority in Christ. This is what I'm trying to come to. We carry the authority in Christ to shift these things because 2 Corinthians 10 tells us the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning not natural, not physical, but they're supernatural. Not only are they supernatural, it says there that they're mighty in God. Question is, mighty in God for what? It says, mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds for the casting down of arguments, for the casting down of every high thing. Remember, beings in the high places. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The weapons we have are highly effective to do this. We have the authority of Christ within, and I, for one, will not be cooperating with a spirit of fear and a spirit of division. That is what I do battle with. But I didn't want to spend all of that time focusing on the enemy because I want to focus on Jesus. It's just it's an area we tend to be unfamiliar with and untrained in, and yet it was a crucial part of Jesus' ministry, and it's a crucial part of ours in this ministry of reconciliation that we've inherited. Yeah? So we need, we need discernment in this hour to know which battles to fight and to fight the good fight. When we need to act in the natural, but when we need to act in the spirit. And while we do battle in our activity, for sure, with our armor on, head on to situations and circumstances, I would put to you that the bulk of supernatural battles are not fought on our feet, but on our knees. The bulk of spiritual battles aren't fought on our feet, but on our knees. The first battle is the one on our knees before God, an intercession. Our first battle is not standing in front line face to face with the enemy. That might come, but it doesn't come first. Our battle position is on our knees face to face with God. And I actually believe that that is where the victory is won. It's in that space, which is why when it's time to face the enemy in certain scenarios, we can do so with no fear because we carry the absolute conviction that we already have the victory in Christ Jesus. I mean, how else was David, the shepherd, able to be so assured of his victory against the giant, a giant he'd never fought before, and for all we know, he'd never fought giants before. Yes, he'd fought the lion. Yes, he'd fought the bear. And there's no doubt that his skill and experience with the sling played a part, 
But listen to his comments. His confidence wasn't in his skill. His confidence wasn't in his talent. It had nothing to do with that and everything to do with his confidence in the Lord. 1 Samuel 17 says, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. In other words, you come to me with natural weapons, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have to fight. Notice he doesn't say, I come to you with my skill. I come to you with my sling. He doesn't appeal to natural weapons. He appeals to the supernatural weapon. That is the victory of God. He says, this day I will deliver you, deli- the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day, the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines will be given to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. This is how we speak to the enemy. How was he so assured of his victory? I would put to you, it's because his victory wasn't won on the battlefield that day in front of the soldiers, but it was won out in the field in front of the sheep as a shepherd under the stars on his knees in awe of God and who he is and what he's able to do. That is where the battle is won. And so as I just kind of bring this to a close, and I'd love to dive deeper into how to engage effectively in spiritual warfare, have to be another time. I want to draw your attention to what I believe to be the most spiritually effective spiritual warfare you can engage in. And I want you to take notice of what the unclean spirit said to Jesus. And we can read it in Matthew 8, 29. He says this, And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Isn't that interesting? Something behind that, isn't there? Have you come to torment us before the time? See, these spirits knew who Jesus was. And they also knew what their future holds. Yeah? I love that saying. Anytime the devil tries to remind you of your past, you just remind him of his future. Come on now. These spirits knew their future and what their future held because there will come a time when Jesus returns where he will put an end to all sin and the devil and his angels will be judged and thrown into the lake of the fire. The spirits know this. So let me tell you the thing that the enemy fears the most, the thing that we can do that terrifies the enemy more than anything is the preaching of the gospel and everything that comes with it because their demise is directly connected to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So the greatest warfare you can do is fulfill the Great Commission. Come on now. You want to do war with the enemy? Preach the gospel to your family. Preach the gospel to your neighbors. Preach the gospel to your workplace. That is how you do war with the enemy. You have all authority to do so because Christ within you and he has overcome the world and all authority has been given to him and all the heavens and the earth. Come on now. That's the greatest warfare you can do. Preach the gospel. Fulfill the great commission. They're terrified of it. That's why they resist it. It's why they fight it. It's why they buffet it. It's why they resist you every time you try. But you have authority in the natural and in the supernatural. It's already been given to you. He won it on the cross. 
Your salvation sets you on a rock, a rock that is Christ. It's why they send storms when you're on assignment. It's why they sometimes harass because they know they don't want you to do what God's calling you to do and preaching the goodness of God. So the battle isn't won in the waves. Battle is won in the wind. So there are winds of destruction from the enemy, such as described in this story. There are winds of doctrine that are sent to destabilize people. But let me tell you what, there's a mighty rushing wind, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, the mighty rushing wind, the grace who empowers us to fulfill this ministry of reconciliation, which destroys the work of the enemy. Do battle, not in the waves, but in the wind. Because when that happens, hell is plundered, heaven is populated. We love it and they hate it. So we're going to keep doing it. <laughs> so just like Jesus, instead of focusing on the waves, let's start speaking to the wind. The Prince of Peace himself is in our boat. And so I said to you at the beginning, I was going to give you two sides to the same point. So just as I come to a close, I'm going to finish with this thought. Taking our eyes off of the waves and understanding what's happening in the wind isn't just about understanding what the enemy is doing, but placing our eyes on what God is doing. Because I think especially in this season, and I have, I've been so guilty of this, you can get so distracted by looking at what the world is doing, what the governments are doing, what all these things, what everyone else is doing. I want to know what God's doing. I don't know what the plan of God is. You know what? Because for the church, there's only one way. We go from glory to glory. That's it. There's only one way, one, one direction the church goes in. Glory to glory. God is working. God is doing a great thing. God is shaking, yes, but in that shaking, there's a purifying fire. In that shaking, there's a revival in the wings. In that shaking, there is a, there is a refining of those that you're, either gonna, you're not going to sit on the fence anymore. You're either going to serve Him with all your heart or you're not. God is bringing holiness back to His church. He's bringing fire back to His church. Glory to glory. Let's be about what the Father is doing. Let's be focused on what God is doing. Having our eyes on the wind, the wind of the Spirit, and where the wind is blowing. And we often talk about, you know, the different things going on as being the battle of our time. And we certainly have unique challenges in our time, no doubt. But engaging in the spiritual warfare of preaching the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission, not only is that the battle of our time, but it's the battle of all time. And what a privilege it is to be in the Lord's army as we fight the good fight. This is an amazing time to be alive. Such an amazing time. You were chosen for such a time as this. You're not here by accident. So let's take our eyes off the waves. Place them on the wind of the Spirit. Because the victory is ours in Christ Jesus. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. And this is why Jesus says, be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Come on now. Amen. Amen. Thank you for having me. And I trust and pray that you've been blessed by the Lord. But, you know, I really, as we always do, we want to give opportunity. It's one thing to talk about Jesus, but if you don't know who he is, we would love to introduce you to him. He's transformed our lives. He's healed our lives. He's set us free. He's delivered us. He's real. He's real. 